Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. Thank you to the generous underwriters of Sharper Iron, the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. And Luther Classical College, a college for Lutherans by Lutherans, opening in fall 2025. Learn more at lutherclassical.org. On this Wednesday, October 4th, we are studying Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 to 4. In today's text, the author of Hebrews exhorts his hearers to pay closer attention to what they have heard God speak, lest they drift away from his great salvation. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Sean Linnell. Pastor Linnell serves at Trinity Lutheran Church in Blair, Nebraska. Pastor Linnell, welcome back to Sharper Iron. Hey, thank you for having me on. It's always a privilege and a joy to be with you and God's people to study His Word, so thank you. So we get to talk about the first part of Hebrews chapter 2 today, Pastor Linnell. What should we know about this book of Holy Scripture? Any context that'll help us examine these verses? Yeah, well, um, I don't know how much we, we went over sort of Hebrews as a as a structure in the, the, the previous sessions, but for anybody who's, who's tuning in anew, um, Hebrews, uh, we say the author to the Hebrews because we're, we're not really entirely sure who wrote it. Was it, was it Paul? Was it Barnabas? Was it, was it Apollos? We, we, we really don't know. I, I personally don't really think that it's Paul because he, he doesn't sort of ramble enough. He doesn't chase enough. <laughs> but it's certainly in, in theme with everything that, that Paul wrote and, and, and in theme with everything that the apostles taught. And so it's still a very faithful book, even if kind of uniquely we don't know who wrote it. But not only that, right? We don't know who wrote it, but we but we don't know who they wrote it to exactly, right? We say that it's written to the Hebrews, but where, to, to whom, right? There's no public letters, there's no blog or anything at that time. And so we're not we're not entirely sure who exactly they were writing this to, but we do know a few things. We do know that the author had a, a personal relationship with the apostles. And again, the the teachings of this letter are consistent then with the teachings of the apostles. It's consistent with the, the teachings of Jesus and, and the gospels. And we also know that whoever it is that they wrote this letter to, they they expect that the readers are intimately familiar with the Old Testament, and not just intimately familiar with the Old Testament, but also intimately familiar with the way that that the Jews, that the Hebrew people would have understood the Old Testament, the things that they would have, the way that they would have read it, the, the way that they would have I interpreted certain texts, right? And we'll get into that here in, in just a minute. So the letter to the Hebrews was written to a group of people like that, and also written to a group of people, a community that was facing persecution because of their relationship to Jesus. And we, we, we see that, again, pretty, pretty clearly, um, not just in, in chapter 10, but in the exhortations in chapters 11 through 13, and at the end of each one of these sections. And so um, because of this persecution, many people in this community to whom the letter to the Hebrews is written, they're they're walking away from Jesus and they're walking away from some of them the faith altogether. And so these things, these three things that we talked about and this crisis really kind of explains the purpose of the letter. And it also it also explains the structure of the letter and why it's set up kind of the way that it is. Because in the letter to the Hebrews, we have sort of this short introduction to start with, but then we have sort of four sections. And in these four sections, the author compares Jesus to key people, to key events from the Old Testament. And so in chapters one through two, uh, Jesus is compared to the angels. And that's a little bit about what you talked about last time and what we're going to talk about today. In chapters three through four, 
Jesus is compared to Moses and their, uh, the, the events of going to the promised land. In 5 through 7, Jesus is compared to the priesthood, uh, the priests, and then specifically Melchizedek. And then in 8 through 9, Jesus is compared to the Old Testament sacrifices and the covenant that was made with Israel. In chapters 11 through 13, we get sort of a recap. That's that big, long list of faithful people. And then an exhortation um, that they should remain in the faith and be confident and not give those things up. And so in all of this and in the structure, there are, there are two goals that the author to the Hebrews wishes to accomplish, two, two ideas, two messages that, that the person wishes to convey. And the first one is to show that Jesus is greater than every single thing and person that he is going to compare him to. Whether that is angels or Moses or the sack of Jesus is greater than all of them and is the fulfillment of all of them was always the one that was to come. And then the second thing is really to challenge the readers to remain faithful in the midst of persecution and not just challenge them as if faith was our own sort of doing, but give them a reason to be confident, give them a reason to have that sort of strength. And so... Um, Somebody somebody once gave me two kind of tips or two tips as we were reading through Hebrews to to sort of understand and to better kind of help as you're reading through. So if you're reading through Hebrews on your own, the first one is every time the the author to the Hebrews is quoting the Old Testament, which is literally like every other sentence. Um, go and look that up and read that in context because you'll better understand why they quote that and you'll probably see connections that aren't explicit right there in the text and the second one is that you should be prepared to feel uncomfortable because every one of those exhortations every one of those admonishments to stay faithful is a warning and it's not designed to scare you into compliance but you are supposed to be uncomfortable you don't want what happens if you don't have Jesus. But it's not meant to scare you. It's, it really is meant to assure you. So you, you, are, you are meant to feel uncomfortable, but you are meant that uncomfortable feeling is meant to turn you back to Jesus where you feel safe and secure and to understand those things. So, um, so that's, that's sort of what I would say. Now, today, um, today we're focusing on the first section, which is chapters one and two, but we have the beginning then of chapter two, and um, it's right after this long set of quotations from from chapter one about Jesus and and being compared to angels. So for us right now, we are we are focusing on why and how Jesus is really compared to the angels of the Old Testament and what that means for us as we're considering the faith that was delivered to us by Christ in the gospel and the apostles who heard him. So that's kind of where we're at. All right. That's a very, very helpful introduction. We've got parts of both of those things that you've said are the purpose for the letter of Hebrews that we get to talk about here in this section. So this is Hebrews chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable— and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. That's our text for today. That's Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 to 4. So, Pastor Linnell, uh, given those things that you talked about, that when we've got Old Testament, we need to go look it up, we need to understand it in its context, and also that there's warnings that are going to make us feel uncomfortable, it seems that the first verse of our text falls into that second category that you gave us. We've got a warning that probably makes us feel uncomfortable. We must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. Talk to us about that first verse. So... In when we talk about paying much closer attention, right? There, there was a message. There was, you know, a word of God to which we were uh, originally sort of intended to to pay attention in the first place. Um, but I guess really, it kind of goes back to 
the beginning of Hebrews in chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. It starts off and it says, In many and various ways God spoke to his people of old by the prophets, but now in these last days he's spoken to us by his Son. And so, you know, in all of the ways in which God revealed himself in his word in the Old Testament, his people were instructed to pay attention to these things. And when we say pay attention in a certain sense, you know, we, we really do just mean that, right? Like, don't don't blow this off. But but really, when we say pay attention, we mean to, to guard and to, to keep, to learn, to actually give your attention, not just once when it's being spoken, but to let your attention always be on God's word, no matter what you're doing in life, no matter no matter where you are. Um, but now in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son. And so this gospel that Christ brings is that which we're supposed to pay, in a certain sense, even more attention to, right? And that's all very straightforward, yeah? But actually, the first word there, as we start reading in chapter 2, the first word is therefore. But therefore, therefore what? What is therefore referring to? And so, if we're talking about, hold on, I lost my little page here as I was looking. As we talk about what he's referring to, he's referring to everything that was going on in chapter 1 and his comparison with the angels. Why is he comparing Jesus to angels? So, when he's comparing Jesus to angels, it was Jewish tradition that when Moses received the Torah, when he was up on Sinai and he was talking to God, that he wasn't actually receiving that from God directly. The Jewish Torah or the Jewish tradition about Torah is that Moses was receiving this Torah, was receiving these things through angelic mediaries. Now, is that true? Or was he talking to God directly? Was he talking to angels or was he talking to God? I don't actually think it really matters. Because the people to whom the letter is being written, that's what they believe. And it's just not worth the author's time to argue with them about that. And that, by the way, shouldn't make us feel uncomfortable. Because Stephen does the same thing in Acts 7, verse 53. He also references that Moses received the Torah through angelic mediators. So you can't really be mad at the author to the Hebrews here, unless you're also going to be mad at Stephen. And our understanding is that Stephen is inspired by the Holy Spirit during this, this thing. So I guess you're really mad with the Holy Spirit. But when we talk about this, this being received through angelic mediaries, what we're saying is that um, Jesus, being the, the image, the radiance of God, now you're actually receiving the word from him directly. And so Jesus isn't greater than just Moses, right? He's not a new Moses. He's not just greater than the angels, right? Jesus here is God. When you hear Jesus, you hear God. And so if you're going to be paying attention to Moses, if you're going to be paying attention to angels, then you darn well better pay attention to God. It just doesn't turn out well when God is speaking and you're not paying attention to it. Now, the whole thing, uh, I sort of left this out, the whole sort of basis of Moses receiving this text through intermediaries actually comes from Deuteronomy 33.2, but I'm not convinced that that actually says a whole lot about Moses receiving the text through intermediaries. Like it actually says something about God came down from his holy place through 10,000 of his witnesses or his holy ones or whatever the deal is. It's not a terribly convincing text for me that Moses received this through intermediaries, but that has never stopped the rabbis before. They make all sorts of claims based on the thinnest of texts, right? And as Lutherans, we can appreciate their skill in proof texting, but I don't know if they're exactly correct here. But, but again, the, the message here is that the word of God given to Moses is in a certain sense less than that which is given through Christ. Now, when I say that, that immediately makes me uncomfortable, right? How can the word of God be less over here than it than it is over there. And I, that's not exactly what I mean, right? But really what I mean is, is probably the same way that Jesus spoke in his Sermon on the Mount. You remember how Jesus spoke? He said, you have heard it said, but I say unto you. 
Now, if you were listening to Jesus talk like that, what impression would you get? That the thing Jesus is saying either somehow supersedes or completes what Moses originally intended or what was originally given to Moses. And so it's not that what Moses was given is like bad or substandard or corrupted or anything like that. Jesus isn't correcting it. But Jesus is fulfilling what that was always meant to be and which the rabbis had sort of had sort of corrupted along that way. But still, he says, you have heard it said, but I will say unto you. So again, if Israel is clearly called to observe Torah, how much more so is the church called to observe all that I have commanded you? And again, that's what Jesus says at the end of Matthew 28. He says, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Right? And he says, and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. So this, this, this pay attention, this, this thing, like it's really all over in scripture. And he's just exhorting them back to their baptism and the promise that was given and the command that was given thereof. So when he says pay attention, I think, I think that's kind of where that is. And it, it follows those two sorts of things. It's Jesus is greater, and so the message that he gave is greater. And if you were exhorted to pay attention in the Old Testament, you're absolutely exhorted to pay attention in the, in the New Testament, right? Um, mm, and then yeah. also that Jesus is greater than all of those things. So that's, that's kind of a lot all wrapped up into one there. No, and I, I think that's all very helpful. That if, as you said, if the synagogue is going to observe the Torah, then how much more the church guard, keep, hold on to the words of Christ, who is God? I mean, it, it makes perfect sense. Again, it fl- fits perfectly into the flow of the argument that is being being put forth here in this letter to the Hebrews. Now, we must pay much closer attention to this that we've heard from Christ, who is God. Uh, and if we don't, then this is lest we drift away from it. So talk about this matter of, of drifting away from what we've heard. Yeah, so I, I love the way that he that he presents it, right? Um, we have to pay close attention uh, to what we have heard. And where does faith come if not by hearing? And so, again, this is this is very sort of Pauline in this regard where he's talking about the faith that was once delivered to you by the saints, this gospel which we have given unto you, these sorts of things. So when he says the things that you have heard, we're not talking about rumors. We're not even really talking about teaching. We're talking about the faith that was delivered to you. And the faith that is delivered to you is delivered through the word. Later on at the end of this section, we're going to get the, the, you know, the miracles and the signs and great wonders. But, but for them, and certainly for us, it is the word of God which you were heard, which you heard, and and so it's not a it's not a message. It's not you know just some some random sort of thing. It's not just the good. It is actually the word of God, which you hear, and upon hearing the word of God, which creates faith. So when he puts in there, right this this thing which we have heard, that that should be a key thing for you that we're talking about the faith, not just some some thing that they have heard. And then when he comes to the end of it lest we drift away from it. And this kind of gets into a, I don't, I don't, I don't know if we really want to do this today, but um, you, you can drift away from the faith, right? Like we, as Lutherans, we, we teach that there is a, a real truth around predestination, right? Faith is something that God creates in you that from the, from the, the foundations of the world, right? This lamb, which has been slain, this is God's plan for you. So if you, if you are saved, we give 100% credit to God on this. What we do not do is what the Calvinists, the Presbyterians, the ones that are still actually Presbyterian, right? Any of these, the reform, we don't do the thing that they do, which is to say, oh, if you're saved, God did that. And if you're not saved, God also did that. This idea of double predestination, that nothing we do matters, and that God chooses who's going to heaven and who's going to hell, and there's, there's just nothing in between. We don't, we don't do that. And the reason that we don't do that is not because it's unpalatable to us. It's not because it doesn't make sense. It actually, it actually kind of makes more sense to my logical brain. But if I look at the Bible and I read what the Bible says, the Lord does not desire the death of a sinner, but that that all should repent and be saved, that Jesus died 
for our sins and not ours only, but for the sins of the whole world, right? And then you also get passages like this, which is that you can have faith, right? You have heard, and that word heard indicates faith, right? If you, if you did not, if you don't have faith, then you didn't hear it. You stopped up your ears and you did not hear. In the Hebrew tradition, hearing means believing, so hearing is helpful, lest you just drift away from it. So that means that you actually did have faith, and you wandered away from, you drifted away from that faith, and you, you, you told God, having, you know, experienced in a certain sense his grace, received it, known it, and then inexplicably wandered away from it. And inexplicably is not simply a word of exclamation for me here. I don't have a reason for why that happens. I don't know. It's a mystery to me. Faith, faith is not a mystery to me. I know exactly where it comes from. I know how it happens. It's a miracle, but it's, a, but it's, but it's not a mystery. Now, unbelief, the wandering away, the drifting away, that is not a miracle. That is not God's doing. But it is a mystery to me. I don't understand. I don't, I don't understand why anybody would do that. And, and yet we see it clearly here in the text. So, you know, there's lots of passages that we could go to debunk double predestination or this idea that there's a reprobate and that God sends people to hell. But I mean, this is just one of them. You cannot drift away from something that you were never in. Yeah. So in the Calvinist or the, the Reform, the Presbyterian sort of idea, what they would say is that if you if you wander away from the church, you were actually never a member. You never really had faith anyway. You were just sort of pretending or maybe you were confused or something. And, and what he says pretty clearly here is that you drift away. So, um, so again, that's, that's very sad. Um, but why are these people drifting away? And honestly, it's, it's because um, they're experiencing some pretty intense persecution. There is risk involved. There's loss involved in following Jesus. And that has been too much for them. And we could say that that's too much for them because their faith is weak or maybe because, you know, they care in a certain sense more about something else than they do about salvation. Maybe they they were um, assaulted by, in a spiritual sort of sense, the temptations of other things, or maybe they just never they they really needed to be encouraged by the gospel, right? Because faith is not this thing that you create and you hold on to and you lend strength to. That faith needs to be watered. It needs to have the sunshine upon it. it. It needs to to be tended to like a garden, right? And so when your faith is struggling, it's not that you need to try harder. You need to be reassured that that faith is not empty and that hope is not put to shame. That's one of the reasons why we come to church. That's one of the reasons why we come to hear the gospel right? That's one of the reasons why we come in and we confess our sins, because the devil is really convincing. He's been at this a long time. The world is a hard place. It's a, it's a really difficult place to live. And there are some things that are really enjoyable in the short term. And as our, you know, little human brains have sort of, you know, come to be, we're all kind of little addicts, right? We all want that wonderful release of dopamine in the short term. And so planning for the future is hard. And so again, we need to be built up. And that's what these exhortations are about. It's meant to remind us that drifting away from the faith does not mean drifting to comfort and salvation in anything good, right? You think it's bad now. It's really bad over there. And I'm sorry if that's unpleasant, but look, sometimes, you know, the grass is not greener. It's, it's all just, you know, thistles on both sides. And so, but, but when you're here, and this is what the author of the Hebrews is trying to remind them and show them, when you are here, you actually have a hope for the future, not a hope like it might happen but a sure and certain hope of salvation, of forgiveness, of life with God, you have something greater than yourself that the devil in the world can never take away. And if you drift away, all you have is weeping and gnashing of teeth. So that's, that's part of this here when he comes and he talks about drifting away, right? Um, we kind of led into the predestination argument, but, that's, but there's a lot. There's a lot right there in that first verse. So.
Absolutely. Absolutely. We've got maybe about a minute and a half here before the break. Could you talk just a little bit about the fact that it's it's drifting away as opposed to just like outright walking? You're gone all of a sudden, but it's it's a drifting. It seems to be a, a slow thing that happens. Maybe you don't even realize it at first. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I well when I when I talk to my people, when I when I teach to them here, um, I think that the the greatest um, most tangible sort of example that we have for how sin works is actually substance abuse, right? Um, when, when you engage in, in substance abuse, um, generally speaking, you don't jump right into overdose. Sometimes that happens, right? Absolutely. Some, but most of the time you, you have little things just, you know, you don't very need very much to get you going, but by golly, whatever it was that you had, was really enjoyable in the short term. And the side effects, the consequences don't seem to be that great. And so you're like, well, maybe I can control this. I can serve two masters. I can, I can engage in this sin over here and Jesus is going to forgive me. And I'm not really going off the deep end. There's people that are much worse and they're forgiven. So maybe I can play a little bit in both camps. But like having your foot in two boats, they're immediately going to start drifting away. And it's fine at first. It's fine. And in fact, if at any point in time I wanted to bring my knees back together, I could probably pull those boats back together. But by the time you realize the boats are too far apart, you're going to get wet, right? There's nothing you can do about that. And much like substance abuse, by the time you realize there's a problem, there's a real problem and you can't fix that on your own anymore, right? And as far as like people talk about rock bottom, man, listen, rock bottom is when you quit digging. You're going to keep going down until you, until you stop. And, and again, you're at the bottom of this pit. You can't even crawl yourself out on your own anymore. And so you, you need somebody to come down there and help you up. I, I, that's, that's a lot of sort of analogies, but I think if you, if you really kind of pay attention to how either, you know, how uh, substance abuse works, how uh, codependency works, how people um, find themselves in abusive relationships that start off really kind of small, and then years down the road, people are putting holes in walls and they're, they're really doing some seriously inappropriate things. And you say, how did I ever let it get to this point? It always starts off small. And then by the time it's, it's, you realize that it's a problem, it's too big for you to fix on your own and you don't know who to go to for help. Yeah. And I think, again, I think that's a picture that the author of Hebrews would put into our minds with this language of drifting away so that we would realize just how serious it is for us to pay much closer attention to the words that we have heard from God himself. We're going to keep listening to those words of God on Sharper Iron on the other side of the break. We're talking to Pastor Sean Linnell this morning. We'll be right back. Please stick around. Who does Lutheran Church Extension Fund serve, you ask? It's simple. We serve Lutheran Church Missouri Synod ministries and church workers with loans and ministry services. And it's faithful Lutherans like you, church members and church workers alike, investing with LCEF that makes it possible for LCEF to serve these ministries. Learn more at lcef.org. LCF is a nonprofit religious organization. Therefore, LCF investments are not FDIC insured bank deposit accounts. This is not an offer to sell investments or solicitation to buy. LCF will offer and sell its securities only in states where authorized. The offer is made solely by LCF's offering circular. Investors should carefully read the offering circular, which more fully describes associated risks. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Wednesday, October 4th. We're studying Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 to 4 with Pastor Sean Linnell. He serves at Trinity Lutheran Church in Blair, Nebraska. Pastor Linnell, prior to the break, we made it through verse 1, and now we jump into verse 2, where the author says, Since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? This sounds like that argument from lesser to greater, Jesus is greater, that you've talked about before. Help us into this next sentence. 
Absolutely, right? Because he's the author of the Hebrews has spent, you know, the last half a chapter uh, talking about passages that, that contrast Jesus from angels and how the Son of Man is greater than them and, you know, and, and these sorts of things. And so when, when we get here and he says, you know, this message that was once delivered by angels, Again, they're speaking of the Torah at this point. They're talking about the word that was given to God's people through Moses. And uh, don't look for your proof texts about that, um, but that's what they're talking about, sort of this Jewish understanding, this this Jewish tradition. Personally, by the way, um, I still think that Moses was receiving this not from an angel of the Lord, but the angel of the Lord, and this is this is Jesus. But perhaps that's a conversation for a bit different time, you know, the difference between an angel and the angel. The The issue is, though, is that in the Old Testament, right, we do see actual angels, and we see what happens when people don't listen to them. And so that, that never turns out good. And so this is, this is a little bit uh, reflective of and, and reminiscent of those things. So the message that was delivered by the angels was reliable, proved to be reliable. That message is the Torah. And what was the purpose of the Torah when they gave it, when it was given, right? Assuming that the angels gave it to Moses when it was given. So the purpose of the Torah was um, to show God's promise, not only to his people, uh, about them being his people and delivering them in a, a more temporal and immediate sense, but also that they are the ones that carry the promise from creation and that the Messiah would indeed come through them. So these promises, and then what it looks like for them to live according to that promise. You have the Ten Commandments, but are they really commandments or are they future indicative statements, right? I'm the Lord your God. I've taken you out of Egypt. And because I have done these things, you will not have any other gods. Not really you shouldn't, but you won't, right? You, you will not misuse my name. You, you will not um, murder. You won't do these things because you are mine, and that's what it looks like to live in the grace and salvation, right, as my people. And so there are promises associated with these things. Now, what then also, is there any other message, any other word, if you, even if you want to call the Old Testament the law, even though there is much gospel in it, is there a gospel that has been delivered by angels? Because the reader to the Hebrew, the writer to the Hebrews would certainly know this. Well, yeah, in fact, my goodness, Matthew, right? If Matthew is going to be sort of the, the counterpart to the Torah, like Matthew begins with, 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 messages, right, from angels, right, with dreams and the like. And Luke does the same thing too. You you have the angel coming and you have the annunciation of, of Jesus. You have the annunciation of John. The, the gospel begins by this declaration of angels. You have angels declaring to the shepherds, right? So you have angels delivering this gospel message in the New Testament, just as in the Old. And if they were supposed to listen to the, the Torah in the old, how much more so now the proclamation of this good news and peace on earth with the birth of Christ and everything that comes in it, comes with it. And then it comes over to sort of this other side. It says, um, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution. Now, my goodness, um, later on, he's going to compare Jesus to Moses and the wandering through the promised land. So we would probably take those analogies and save them for the next section. But even prior to Moses, we see angels, actual angels showing up with some manner of message, and we see them being rejected, and we see it not turn out very well, right? So in the Old Testament, I think um, really probably one of the most famous ones would be Sodom and Gomorrah, right? And so you have angels show up, and you have the people sort of reject these angels, these messengers from God, and it turns out for their complete and total destruction, right? This is this is super bad for them. Yeah. Um, you you see angels in in that regard. And there was there was another one there that was before Moses, and now I'm I'm actually drawing a little bit of a blank here, but 
Um, but you see, you see angels prior to Moses. You see people reject them, and it turns out terrible for them. So what happens in the New Testament then when angels show up and people reject them? Well, I mean, you actually get to see a little bit in Zechariah, right? Because the angel shows up and he's like, well, how do I know? It wasn't an outright rejection exactly, but it was, it was you know, probably less cooperative than he could have been. And so <laughs> he was told to be silent, right? If you're not going to speak the word that was given to you, then you shall say nothing at all. Now, not only that, right? But I mean, the, the Jesus himself, as he's going through, right, he says, um, it shall be, uh, if, if Tyre and Sidon in those days had heard the word, then they should have repented, right? But I tell you, it would be worse in those days for Sodom and Gomorrah, or it would be worse for you than it was for Sodom and Gomorrah, right? So even Jesus is referencing these, this, this Old Testament thing. But so you have those comparison rejections and how that turns out, and that's really, really bad. But what else do you have? It says, Every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution. I'm going to be honest. If I look at the Old Testament, I don't see that. Hmm. I don't see every transgression. I don't see every disobedience receiving a just retribution. I don't see it. Read the last couple of chapters in the book of Joshua, right? The whole thing is not uh, Joshua in Judges, excuse me. The last couple of chapters in Judges, it's horrifying. And you know what? I don't see a just retribution in that story. And, and I'm, I'm pretty sure that not every person who transgressed God's law in the Old Testament was, was smited, right? And so how does that, how does that work out? Well, I'll tell you what, I do see it in the New Testament. You think that God is, is much more harsh in the Old Testament. That's sort of our place, No, in the New Testament, Every transgression and every disobedience is punished. It's just punished through Christ. Christ is the one who receives that punishment. And so in the Old Testament, again, even though we have this idea of some sort of vengeful God that likes to cast out lightning and it's a plane, so whatever. Now, in the New Testament, finally, every transgression and every disobedience is painful. But this, again, you know, you can see kind of the difference in the Old Testament, there's this idea of fear. But in the New Testament, every transgression and disobedience is receiving its just retribution. That's actually the gospel. That's a good thing for us. It's a terrible thing for Jesus, but it's a good thing for us. Right? And then so it says, how shall we escape if we neglect such great a salvation? If you are afraid of escaping God's retribution in the Old Testament, then how in the world are you going to feel more safe in the New Testament if you take yourself out from the umbrella of Christ's cross? There is nothing. You certainly can't hide. It's not as if God is going to send out serpents and maybe you're just one of the ones that don't get bit, but you're looking around and you're like, whoa, I'm going to repent, right? There's going to be nothing like that. There's, there is every single, if, there's, if, if you're outside of that umbrella, there's nowhere left to hide right? In the Old Testament, you could hide, but in, in the New Testament, there's no place for you to hide. So again, um, mildly uncomfortable, but it's not meant to like scare you. It's meant to remind you of where you are. You are under the umbrella of Christ's salvation, and you're afraid of the, the persecutions that you're receiving. Have you looked outside? Have you looked at the terrible things that are going on out there? It's much worse out there. Under the umbrella of Christ is the only place that you have salvation, so don't leave it. This is this is what he's saying in chapter uh, 2, verses 1 through 3. Yeah, yeah. And that's, I mean, yeah, exactly that. Don't leave such this great salvation that you have been given. Now, as verse 3 continues, the, the writer says, It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard. Let's just take the rest of verse 3. T take us about into those words. Yeah, so when he says, it was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, we could again do this in, in layers. But if the first question we've got to ask is, what is it? Are we talking about the Old Testament, it, the Word of God? Or are we talking about the New, the New Testament, it, which is the, the Word made flesh in, in Christ? 
And so if you're talking about in the Old Testament, then in the Old Testament, it was revealed by the Lord, even through intermediaries, whatever, if that's what we want to say, that's, that's perfectly fine. But the word of God came down and was given to Moses, first declared there by the Lord. And then it was uh, attested to us by those who heard, right? So you have, again, sort of an oral tradition, and then you have your prophets. Um, you have this sort of... Uh, this sort of setup in the Old Testament where the word of God comes down through one of these people or through the priests or however it works, and then it comes to those who heard it comes to us through the people. Um, throughout the rest of Hebrews, Jesus is going to be compared to each one of those people, each one of those, those groups in turn, and showing how it is that he is greater. In many and various ways, God spoke to his people of old by the prophets, but now in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Now, if we're going to take a look at the New Testament, right, the counterpart to this, at first it was declared to us by the Lord, right? And so um, the first sort of declaration of who Jesus is and what he has come to do in the New Testament is honestly sort of publicly at the beginning of his ministry, there it is baptism. And it is God himself, the, right, who speaks out of heaven these words. And as it has come to us, then it comes through those apostles and through those disciples who were there to hear it. What's interesting to me um, is that he doesn't say uh, those who saw, right? Because if, if this was written by John or one of John's you know, disciples, or what, you would say what, what our eyes have seen, what our hands have touched, right? There's a very tangible sort of mess to it. But here... <clears throat> He focuses on the hearing. And so the relationship then is with the word. This is important, by the way, as we get into uh, verse four and what they're going to be talking about there. But, um, but when, we, when we say attested to us by those who heard, well, certainly he's talking about the disciples. He's talking about the, the apostles, those who were there, not only to see the great signs and wonders that Jesus did, but who heard his words. And upon hearing his words, the Holy Spirit worked faith in their hearts. I mean, this even goes back all the way to like, like, do you remember Mary and Martha? <clears throat> and so Mary and Martha are sitting there and I hate the way that our translations do this. So it says that Martha was doing a lot of, of stuff working and it says that Mary was sitting at the feet of Jesus listening to his teachings. That is not what the Greek says, right? It, she heard the word of his. And so the difference is, is that, that Martha is out there being about much business and serving. And there's nothing, there's nothing wrong with that. That's a good thing that we should all do. But, but it's not about, you know, listening to his teachings. It's, it's really about hearing the words. And all of the miracles and things that, that Jesus was doing, those things were important. Those things, um, they, were, they were sort of physical and outward evidence that he had the authority to forgive sins and, and who he was. But the thing that created faith wasn't just the miracles, right? I mean... Listen, Herod wanted miracles, but but he's not going to get them because because really what true faith and where that faith comes from is from hearing the word and having the Holy Spirit work through that word. So again, I can't overemphasize enough that when he's talking here, the, the author to the Hebrews, about attested to us by those who heard. It's it's not just a, a game of telephone. These, these are people uh, for whom the word of God or to whom the word of God has come created faith in their hearts and who heard it from the source, right? Um, but for us here today, um, even though we don't have a direct line to the apostles that were there that day, we do have their testimony, which is still in the word. And it's in this letter to the Hebrews, and it's, it's in the gospels that come to us, and it's taught to us by people upon whose hearts the Holy Spirit has worked through the hearing of that word. You know, you were never meant to be handed a Bible and be sent off in your room to learn about the faith by yourself, but you were meant to be brought into the church to be discipled by people who had learned from others and to learn as a community. And so this is part of what the letter to the Hebrews is, is about, but it focuses so much on that hearing and hearing that word. It was delivered to Moses by God through intermediaries, and they, they, the, the Torah was, was taught, and, 
and, and created faith and made a people. And in the New Testament also, the gospel of Jesus Christ, first announced by angels, but the word came down, made flesh, and Jesus is greater than the angels who spoke to Moses, greater than Moses, greater than the prophets and the priests. He is greater than all of the sacrifices that were made. He is the one that has come to us. And those who hear his word have exactly what those words promise, and that is forgiveness, life, and salvation. So this is, this is what he is talking about in that second part to uh, verse 3 in chapter 2. I think the way that you, you emphasize that it's those who heard connects back up to the what we have heard in verse 1, which you emphasize the what we have heard is God's word. So if you can think about it, the, the word comes to us in that vertical direction. It's God's word to us. But here in verse 3, there's a horizontal direction to it as well. That word has been heard by others, and they pass it along to me as well. And that importance of being in the community of the church and hearing the word together is a, is a part of this also. So I think I think that those things connect very nicely. We've got about, oh, eight minutes or so here, Pastor Linnell. Take us then into verse 4, in which the writer now says that God also bore witness to all this, and he did so by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. Help us into this last verse of the text. Right. It's not that God doesn't use or hasn't used miracles in this regard, either in the Old Testament or the New. In many and various ways, God spoke to his people of old by the prophets. But now in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son. And the author to the Hebrews admits and says, like, Jesus also did the miracles. Right. And so Jesus isn't just doing miracles as this wonderful sideshow, but all of the miracles that he does, all of the miracles there are proof that he has the authority not only to speak, but to speak forgiveness. And the vast majority of the miracles, all of the miracles that he does are there either completing Old Testament uh, types or tropes or themes or simply fulfilling direct prophecy. So when he's giving sight to the blind, right, when he's raising that, when he's doing these things, these specific miracles that he does fulfill the promises of the Old Testament that he is the Messiah. And so Jesus did prove it by signs and miracles. And by the way, the Holy Spirit continued to do such things for the apostles as well. And so it's not just that there was this guy, Jesus, who wandered around and do things, but what about the message that was given to the apostles, the message that the apostles brought, because you never saw Jesus. Well, they got to do those things too. But what was the first and primary miracle that the apostles received aside from perhaps faith, right? It was the Holy Spirit on Pentecost and the speaking of tongues. And it was there in the speaking of tongues, not so that everybody could see flashy miracles, but so that everybody could hear the word in their own tongue, right? In their own native language. And this is where, again, faith comes from and that that community is built. And so, you know, today we have these communities that, that claim to be from a Christian tradition, and they are still gathered around this idea of, of like New Testament or even Old Testament miracles, right? They, they, they have sort of seizures in the middle of church, and then they try to handle snakes, and those communities get smaller very quickly, you know, but they have, they have lots of things that they, that they try to do. You have TV preachers that predict the end of the world, you have guys that are saying something like, oh, they were out at Burning Man, and then they all got flooded out because God hates them. And while that all may be true, you can't put your faith on that, right? That's not something that you can declare like that. Um, but what we do have, by the way, are a couple of miracles that we still gather around in church. And those miracles are what happened at the font and what happened at the table. We're always looking for these big, flashy sort of miracles, but you would never have any guarantee that those miracles came from God. Are you telling me that Satan can't do anything? You're telling me that Satan couldn't, you know, take Jesus up to the pinnacle of the temple? Right? The, apparently, Satan can do lots of fancy things, too. He seems to have more powers than I do. I wouldn't trust any miracles that I receive when they don't have a promise attached to them. But we do have a couple of miracles with promises attached to them. And those miracles, again, are what happens in the water and the word, the font, and what happens with the word, right? The body of Christ in with and under the bread and wine there at the sacrament. These things are miracles that are given to us, and they are the word of God 
that you hear with your ears, but then attached to an element and they build up our faith. They're things that we do and that we have collectively. And so if you're looking for these miracles, right, the word of God, the promises attested to by miracles, even now in the New Testament, you have them, you have them. It's just that they happen to be so common because God is so generous that he pours out his miracles without you having to wait and call out to him and you know be in such great distress. He's so generous with his love and with his miracles that we discount them, that we drift away from them, that we don't pay attention to them. But this is what they are instructed to do, is to pay attention to what he has given, right? Because again, those miracles, those are, those are nothing else than the word of God which you hear attached to an element that you may touch and feel and know that the Lord is good. So um, in this exhortation, what the author to the Hebrews is giving to these people is first a little bit of an admonishment, which is, you know, you, you think the persecution that you're facing is bad, and, and it is, but it's, it's nothing compared to the things that you face apart from God's grace. Take a look at the people in the Old Testament. You know them because you're Hebrews, right? It never turned out good for them when they wandered away from the word that was delivered from angels. You know that. And there is nothing now in the New Testament out there for you that is any better than what happened with them. And in fact, it's much worse because the entire umbrella of God's salvation is found under Christ and there is no hope, right? No salvation that can be found in any other name but him. So that uncomfortable sort of admonishment, but also this wonderful promise that is given that is here in these words that when you hear these words, they accomplish that purpose for which they were given. That the word that is spoken actually does the thing it says. It builds faith. It forgives sins. And if you're looking for signs and wonders, don't look to the heavens above. Don't look to the earths below or the depths of Sheol, but look exactly where God has promised to be, in the water with the word, and in with and under the bread and the wine, because there he comes, not for retribution, but for the forgiveness of sins. Pastor Sean Linnell is pastor at Trinity Lutheran Church in Blair, Nebraska. He has been helping us today to study Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 to 4. Pastor Linnell, thanks for being our guest today. Always a pleasure. Thanks for having me on. We have heard this word from God. It is God's word that has been preached to us, given by him, and also spoken from our brothers and sisters in Christ, all the way back to the apostles who heard from Jesus himself. What a great salvation that our Lord Jesus has won for us. Why would we neglect it? Why would we do anything but pay close attention to it, that we may continue to live in him now and for eternity? I am your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. If you have any questions about the book of Hebrews, please send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org. It is always a pleasure to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow. Tomorrow.